Hello and welcome to our third episode of History Pop Podcast, where we talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super glad you've decided to tune in to the final episode of our first series. We're doing this like a British TV show. We have series because we're sophisticated that way, uh, where each of these different series is going to be focused on a different theme. And if you stay tuned till the very end of this episode, which I know so long, so arduous, so far away. You'll get to find out and get a sneak peek as to what our next series is going to be based on. No, 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 no. No, it's not Twilight Zone. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so welcome back to our third and final episode where we're going to be talking about Rose of Versailles. Today we're going to be talking about the series itself and the characterizations of Lady Oscar Francois de Jadayes. I but Lady Oscar, she's awesome, and the Queen, Marie Antoinette. So stay tuned. Hopefully we're going to have a little bit of fun today, and I'll see you on the other side. So let's see if we can actually handle recording today. <laughs> okay, so I think that the uh, drilling has stopped next door. So we're just gonna hopefully pop in here and ha! History pop, get it? Uh, I, I, I slay myself. Anyway, uh, so welcome back to History Pop. Hopefully we'll be able to finish through this in one take. And the drilling won't start next door again, because that would be really annoying, especially when they started before 9 a.m. Anyway, so we're finishing up our conversation about the Rose of Versailles, and honestly, just how awesome it is. You should watch it, really. It was on Crunchyroll, uh, so that's just Crunchyroll.com, where you can stream all sorts of legal anime uh to and it's uh they have a lot of simulcast stuff it's really great but if it isn't anymore by the time you get to listen to this which i don't know it's going to be this is kind of a love letter to the future if you think about it because i hadn't actually thought about it that way yet that's really cool anyway uh but if it isn't available anymore on crunchyroll by the time you get to listen to this in the future just buy the DVD set. Uh, it's on Amazon, and if it's not, then I'm sorry. Yeah, good luck, and y you'll be okay. I know that it'll be very sad for you, but it will be okay. I promise. Uh, but if you can just buy the DVD set, go for it. You really won't regret it. If you like adventure and romance and just plain badassery, you'll love it. Uh, I've actually read a couple of times that there is a manga company working on translating the comics into English, and they were supposedly almost done with the translation back in 2018, and then they were going to begin on the editing, so that was really exciting, because uh, I actually was working on a chapter for an edited collection about the Rose of Versailles and a few other things with Marie Antoinette, and I was like, oh, I could actually have my hands on legally translated manga and it'll be great and it's not done like two years later anyway i understand these things take time so i hope that they're just enjoying themselves and having a good time doing it and the end product is just going to be even more amazing because of the time they were able to take for it so 
I know that as soon as I see Rosa Versailles manga being released in English, it's going to go in my cart and I'm going to buy it. It's going to be great. So, anyway, uh, there really hasn't been much in terms of words since 2018, which is a shame because actually doing a little digging on Wikipedia, and there's no reason for Wikipedia to lie here, uh, Rosa Versailles was technically the first manga, so Japanese comic, in America that was commercially available in English. Uh, so the first couple issues have been translated uh, for educational purposes, which makes a lot of sense because not only are you getting to learn about Japanese, like the language, but also the French Revolution. So it's a win-win, double bang for your buck. Uh, but then those issues were just left to turn to dust in the archives while fans eagerly awaited the rest. So hopefully that company that is working on it is still working on it and it will be done soon and that would be great. But today... We're going to be talking about the evolution and growth of the characters, uh, of two of the main characters at least. The proud, kind, and all too real Dauphine, Marie Antoinette, and the general badass Lady Oscar Francois de Jargais. I always have a problem saying Jargais, but I practiced to make sure that I would not screw it up for the podcast. You're welcome. So... Nothing is created in a vacuum, and I honestly believe that creations, stories, art pieces, plays, what have you, say just as much about the person who made them and the culture they were created in, as well as the message that the author is attempting to impart. And if you uh, talk to some Englishy people who study lit and stuff like that, they'll be like, there's no such thing as authorial intent because it's only how you interpret the author's method message. And there's something to be said for that too although as much as i do masquerade as a lit scholar i am not a lit scholar just like i masquerade as a shakespearean scholar i love shakespeare but i'm not a shakespearean scholar but anyway <laughs> anywho but regardless i do wholeheartedly believe that when you look at a work it is a reflection and a reaction to the time it was written in, the place it was written in or created in, and of the person who created it or people who created it. There's all these different factors that are coming in and they come out in certain and different ways. Uh, just as much as like Shakespeare wasn't, you know, technically talking about London when he was writing about Italy, he was really talking about London when he was writing about Italy. Uh, talking about the problems that faced England, his anxieties about economic insecurity, especially during his time frame in the late Elizabethan era, we do have an economic downturn and lots of joblessness, bad harvests, all sorts of stuff. I mean, you have writing off of the high of 1588 and the defeat of the Spanish Invincible Armada, but then after that, it's a rough go. Um, so he's talking about all of those things, uh, shifting gender roles and expectations. Uh, you've got a lot of pushback against women who are challenging gender expectations. We have pamphlets and sermons being preached out in the streets about how women just need to be good women and stop being bad and wearing men's clothes and all of these things. And... He's also talking about war and all of these other nasty things that come out in his comedies, tragedies, and histories. And don't tell me you don't think that Shakespeare wrote the words of Shakespeare. Because if you do, we can't be friends, and that would be very upsetting. With that in mind, though, 
let's examine a bit of the world in which Ikeda Ryoko, and I also do the Japanese way of saying their names because that's how that person would identify. So Ikeda Ryoko, Ikeda is her family name, Ryoko is her given name. Uh, but Ikeda Ryoko wrote the Rose of Versailles manga. So remember, we have a very traditionally feminine character, Marie Antoinette, and a very non-traditional female character in Lady Oscar. And Lady Oscar is insanely popular when the show is going on, and even today in Japan. And Antoinette is like, well, she's not really in the same playing field of popularity as Oscar. So why is that? To start with, the revolutionary narrative could have been... (laughs) To start with, the revolutionary narrative could have been appealing to post-war Japanese audiences. Uh, Anne McKnight, who's a professor who specializes in comparative literature, one of those lit people, and Japanese studies, wrote, quote, Rose of Versailles' dynamic and exuberant formal articulation and its pioneering bubble language of character consciousness, the manga is structured by a historicist narrative, the demise of the court and the emergence of the people, end quote. So what does all that really smart sounding language mean? Well, in Japan after World War II, there were, just like in many other places in the world, radical movements seeking to make social change. We see this in the United States with civil rights movements, with uh, anti-Vietnam protests, uh, women's lib. All of these different movements that are going on happen not just in the U.S., but all over the world. There were leftist, socialist, women's rights movements, among others. And Japan actually didn't really have a civil rights movement like in the U.S. because Japan is much more homogenous in its racial makeup. But other movements, like the women's movements, represented those who were marginalized in the Japanese society. These are reflected in the rise of the people in revolutionary France. There are also a representation of the people of Japan fighting against the powerful forces keeping them down. Uh, We could read into that American occupation, but I don't know that particular history well enough to be able to make that supposition. But it's definitely a possibility. Um, In a lot of ways, the American occupation of Japan is portrayed as a very positive thing. But I'm sure that there are definitely personal narratives of people who did not think of it as a good thing. And so the people fighting against the, the ruling bodies is, you know, the main theme of the French Revolution and in Rosa Versailles. So it's possibly actually that something could be representing that. But anyway, this is just me spitballing here. McKnight contextualizes the Japan of the 1970s in which Ikeda wrote and drew her manga and calls attention to the issues with which Ikeda grapples in her storyline, like issues of class, gender, citizenship, and, quote, a subjectivity grounded in the conditions of labor, end quote. All of this is done through the examination of the French Revolution through the eyes of the characters of the young Queen Marie, Lady Oscar, and Oscar's disciple, Rosalie. Ikeda's focus on women was no accident. She was writing for the shoujo genre, which we've talked about before, uh, which is, once again, typically defined by its focus on character-driven story and romance. But Ikeda shifted the genre and incorporated the historical narrative, which examined not only constructions of femininity and masculinity, but also could have been inspired by the blossoming women's movement in Japan. I think this is far more likely uh, than looking at the American occupation of Japan. A reflection of the second-wave feminism that swept the world in the 60s and 70s, the Uman-ribu, or Women's Lib of Japan, was one in which many of the activists were also supporters of the New Left movements. Anti-Vietnam protests, or Red movements, that were also sweeping Japan. Women's rights to make decisions about their own fertility was one of the most important causes and tenets of the Uman-ribu. 
quote, some of their most significant and sustained campaigns were directed against the state's attempts to restrict access to abortion, emphasizing the creation of the society where women could decide whether they wanted to give birth, as uh, Setsushigetsu writes. This ideal is embodied in the characters of both Marie Antoinette and Oscar. Both are born to the highest echelons of society, so of course they're going to have a lot more privileges than people of lower society, uh, lower classes. And each follows her own heart when it comes to decisions regarding her fertility. The queen seeks to have children for herself and for the good of France. Uh, it's always good to have the heir and the spare, which is, is uh, par common parlance when you're talking about royal studies because you want to be able to have the heir. And then just in case something should happen to him, especially in France, we have Salic law, so it is him. Uh, it's good to have a backup. Uh, but the queen wants to have lots of kids for herself, for her love, for her family, and to be able to provide heirs for France to help with the stability of the monarchy. Oscar, until the very end of the series, denies herself physical romantic entanglement so that she can choose to focus on her duties. In her time, when while there were methods that women understood they could use to prevent pregnancy, the most effective one has always been abstinence. Both McKnight and Nobuko Anan situate the revolutionary narrative of Rosa Versailles against the background of the post-war rise of new leftist social movements, uh, exemplified by the United Red Army and the women's movement. This is evident in the popularity of the character of Oscar, who, demonstrating some feminine qualities, also challenges stereotypes and expectations, especially in her sympathy for the revolutionaries and in her androgyny. Marie Antoinette does not challenge gender or class expectations. She embodies them. Once she becomes a mother, Marie Antoinette seeks only to foster her family and to protect those she loves. This is evidence a few times after the series time slides from when Axel von Fersen leaves to when she gives birth to the new Dauphine. She still performs her duties to see those petitioners, but she only does so half-heartedly. Her burning desire is to be with her family and children, and that causes her out to move out to uh, Petit Trianon, which is a small cottage village on the grounds of Versailles, saying, quote, if I stay here at Versailles proper, I'll be pressed by my duties and won't have time to play with the children, end quote. Oscar, after visiting her at Petit Trianon, remarks to her comrade André that the queen was never happier and she truly had become the mother of France. And this, Oscar saw, was a very good thing. Well, women, quote-unquote, were supposed to give birth and be mothers, this was something that Oscar, who did identify as a woman at various times throughout the series, never had that urge or desire. Oscar, however, defies those gender stereotypes and pushes against the expectations of motherhood. As Nobuko Anand theorizes, the queen wasn't as popular because, quote, one reason why readers did not care about Marie is because she does not try the, to turn the confined, surveilled space, the home, into that of resistance. She simply shifted to mother, as demanded by the royalists. On the other hand, Oscar represents disobedience, end quote. Now, this is super interesting in that Nobukanan is saying that these Japanese women in the 60s and 70s sought to rebel against their proscribed gender roles. They wanted to choose their own path, motherhood or not, work in an office or inside the home, and Oscar allowed them to see that they could choose that path for themselves and not have to be pushed along the tide of expectations like Marie Antoinette. Marie, as soon as she gives birth to her second child, moves the entire family out to Petit Chilinon, her own private villa on the grounds of Versailles. There, she doesn't attend to any business of the crown, raising her children in peace and happiness. 
And this actually did happen. Marie Antoinette loved her little village on the grounds of Versailles. There was a little farm there with cows and chickens, and she could live a bit of a simpler life there, where she could just take care of the animals and her kids. And in so doing, though, in the show and in real life, she hid herself and her children away from the brewing storm of discontent outside of Versailles' boundaries. Oscar tries to convince the queen to return to her duties, but she cannot make herself destroy Marie's happiness. Her inability to confront Marie with the dangerous situation that was brewing in the poor classes marked the beginning of the end for Oscar and Marie. Eventually, both went to their deaths because of it. Not only did Oscar represent a disobedience to monarchical authority, in giving up her role as the head of the Queen's Guard, which she did later on, she strove for an egalitarian society where class was not a barrier to achievement. Oscar loved and was loved by royalty and commoners alike, man or woman, it didn't matter. Everyone loved Oscar. While Marie Antoinette went stoically to her death, Oscar ran bravely into hers, fighting all the way, hashtag spoilers. Ikeda attended to tell the story of, quote, the inner revolution of the Japanese women, and did so through the life and death of Lady Oscar, rather than Marie Antoinette. Through the Rose of Versailles, Ikeda brought to life the French Revolution as well as the social revolutions Japan experienced in the post-war period. According, again, to Nobuko Anan, quote, The Rose of Versailles reflects not only the desire of the girl readers, but also the collective voice of the women who could not find their space in the revolution sought after by male activists, end quote. Just as the Stefan Zweibuck and the 1938 film Marie Antoinette's Destiny, alongside her eventual death, is to become a mother. In the Rose of Versailles, that positive portrayal of motherhood was not enough to save her life or her popularity. The viewing demographic of the Rose of Versailles didn't want to see motherhood as the ultimate goal for a woman. They wanted to see a complicated woman fight for her beliefs, and whose worth wasn't tied to her ability to bear children. This sort of character, a woman who defines herself rather than letting others define her, was what audiences wanted to see, and which was why Lady Oscar went on to be featured in other adventures. There was a live-action film and a musical. Marie Antoinette did not challenge gender norms. She embodied them. So what do we get by telling the story this way? As an anime. In a fictionalized, in making a fictionalized character so integral to the history of France and the revolution. From how I see it, I love telling the French Revolution from the point of view of the female characters. Oftentimes, women's voices are lost or super hard to find in older historical narratives. And that's a whole other can of worms that we can be talking about. And actually, even during the French Revolution itself, there were women who, they're like, oh, okay, cool. We see that you have this uh, bill out that's, you know, the rights of man. So we're just going to go ahead and write the right the rights of women as well and uh that's uh olympe de juger and once again please pardon my terrible french i do my best but i am not trained at all in french uh but olympe de juger was an incredibly important uh writer and rabble rouser during the french revolution who went on to be executed because she fought for women's rights in addition to other reasons as well but we do have women's voices who are silenced during the French Revolution. And so being able to bring in these fictionalized and completely fictional representations of women in the French Revolution, I think is incredibly important because it does remind us that women were there. Women did things. 
not just the queen who gave birth to the French royal family and who was the scapegoat for the French Revolution in a lot of ways. We also have women who were parts of the revolutionary movement and who sought to not just be the helpmeets for the men who were doing the fighting, but women who actually took part themselves in the actual battles in the storming of the Bastille or the battle of wits and ideas in writings. And Oscar represents all of that. And so I think that's incredibly important to be able to include that in the telling of these stories. And I also think that audiences really connect with Oscar. Uh, even though Oscar is a fictional addition, I think that she's absolutely brilliant. And by incorporating a new character to observe these events, we give the audience someone to sympathize with. Someone who's already an aspirational character. Someone we look up to and want to be like a bit. We get to have a little bit of the modern, at least as of the 1970s, outlook on the events of the revolution through the eyes of Oscar and her desire to help the common people to better their lives. So who benefits from telling the story this way? While we do get to see that Marie Antoinette had her flaws and Louis wasn't the most capable king, seeing the revolution from Oscar's eyes shows us that both king and queen were trying their best in the circumstances. And while Antoinette was prideful, she was a fierce defender of her family and of how she believed France was, uh, and of the monarchy. When it all came down to it, she fought to protect the France that she knew and loved. Both she and Louis come across as sympathetic characters, which they don't always do. And Marie, in this iteration of her character, doesn't come across as dumb or stupid as she does sometimes. She may not have had enough education to understand the history of her adopted people, as she did lament later. She was never shown to be a stupid, flighty woman, as she often comes across in her fictional let-them-eat-cake moment. So for now, I'll bid you adieu. And gotta have some of my own cake right now. So until next time, sayonara. Let's work to make the world a little better every day. Stay tuned to more History Pop and our next series, Gloriana Victoria. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. And Carthage must be destroyed. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit production.